Galatians chapter 3. This morning I'm just going to begin by reading the text and then we'll unpack it together. We're in verses 10 down through verse 14. I'm going to start with verse 9 because there's a connection here to where we were last Sunday on the Lord's Day. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now there's a different group of people. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, will you bless your word? Will you take this, the holy word of God, will you sear our hearts with it? Will you change our lives by the white hot heat of your holiness? We invite you. Change our minds. Change our hearts. Transform our lives by the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Paul called Father Abraham to the witness stand. He did this before the Galatians. He was demonstrating that salvation has always been by grace through faith. Old Testament and New Testament. So we're either sons of Abraham, and that is we're those of faith that we read of in verse 9, or we are individuals that are described in verse 10, those who are of the works, those who are of the law. At the heart of this is our desire and our need to be right with God, to be justified, to be clean in God's sight. And this has been ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, when Eve was deceived, And Adam gave up his role of leading his family. He was there, but he wasn't leading his family. And he ate of the fruit. And all of humanity was plunged under the curse. The serpent was cursed. The woman was cursed. The man was cursed. The ground was cursed. Creation was cursed. And Paul writes in Romans that all creation is groaning under this curse. Our bodies, right, waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be reversed from the curse. Throughout human history, we've observed two approaches for fixing this problem, for reversing this curse, and one is God's way, and the other is man's way. There's God's way to reverse the curse, and there's man's way attempting to reverse the curse. Now, this week, if you're a baseball fan, the World Series wrapped up. Went to game seven, Washington Nationals, they defeated the Houston Astros. Interesting games unfolded. 
reminds me of, there's really two curses that I can think of that, that are throughout baseball. All of the things that people go through in sports, you know, to, to go through certain uh, motions, routines, rituals before a game. You know, Notre Dame, they walk out and they've got to slap the symbol out of the wa- locker room on the way to the field. All these different routines that they go through. One curse that I was reminded of is the curse of the Bambino. Okay, is that the one you think of, first of all? Babe Ruth, in 1919, was traded to the New York Yankees for $25,000. And the Boston Red Sox, for a long time after that, believed they were under the curse of the Bambino. That's a nickname for Babe Ruth. We traded the greatest player in baseball for $25,000. We're never going to win. And year after year, they lost to the Yankees and lost to the Yankees year after year until game four in 2004 in the AL championship, they're down, their backs are against the wall, they're under three games, they're fighting for their lives, and a base is stolen. Second base is stolen by a pinch runner. And the momentum shifts in the stadium. And the Boston Red Sox go on to win that game and win the series. And the curse is reversed. We won. The other curse that I was thinking of, I grew up in the Chicago area, is the Cubs. So if you follow the Cubs, you know, all them Harry Carey years, sing it out, you know, they, were, they just never could win. Loyal fans. And here's the story behind the curse. The curse of the billy goat. The billy goat's name was Murphy. Fell off a truck, wandered into a tavern. The tavern's owner name was William. Bill. Bill loved the billy goat. Renamed his tavern after the billy goat. The Cubs go to the World Series in 1945. William, the tavern owner, loves Murphy, his goat, buys two tickets to the World Series, goes to the game, The owner of the Cubs sees the guy walking in with a goat and sends the usher, get the stinking goat out of my stadium. William says, oh yeah, my goat stinks? Your Cubs stink and they're never going to win. Curse them. All of these things down through history uh, where they're, they're on the way to winning in one year, And a black cat comes out of nowhere and walks through the dugout, and we're cursed, and they lose. They go on to lose the series. Uh, Another year, Gatorade is spilled on the, I think it was the first baseman's glove. Here's an easy out, and he flubs his, and guess what the first baseman's name was? Murphy. Oh, we're cursed. I forget which year it was. And they're on the way to winning. And a fan reaches over. He wasn't the only fan. And he messes with that foul ball that was almost caught. And they had to rescue that guy out of there because all the Cubs, like, you are continuing the curse. And they flub a play, easy out. They mess up. They go on to lose. And it isn't until 2016 and the Cubs win the World Series. The curse is reversed. Now, here's the thing. Two teams, many decades, believe they were under a curse. Um, 
You got two teams who now the curse is gone, but they haven't continued to win every year since then. So what's the explanation now? And what happens if those two teams were to square off and they both believe we're, we're out from under the curse? Well, who's, who's out from under the curse? Because somebody's going to lose and somebody's going to win. So all of the things they go through in routines of sports to make sure that I didn't mess something up to mess up this game. You know what I'm talking about? You know, I got to go to the table, put the chalk on, throw it in the air. I've got to do so many shots. I've got to make this. And if I don't wear these shoes, some people, are, they're, they're saying, if I, you know, I'm going to wear the same pair of clothing, you know, through the whole thing, because we won in those uh, pair of underwear. So I'm going to keep those on. Well, all of these things that we can laugh at, but the, here's the reality. There is a curse that we really need to deal with. There's a curse that hangs over all of us because we're natural born sinners. Because of this curse, not one of us make it off this planet alive. That's how bad this curse is. So we search for a solution to fix the problem. We're easily lulled into thinking the problem is everybody else. The problem is the world. The problem is them. When the reality is the problem is in here. It's my problem. It's your problem. Trying to make things right on our own, that's one approach. We're going to be, I'm going to be good. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to, I'm going to be tolerant. That's, that's how we reverse the curse. I'm going to be tolerant, and I think people should be tolerant of me, or at least of people of the things that I agree with. This is self-centered. This is a workspace. And the problem with this approach, trying to fix my problem with God, trying to reverse the curse on my own, it either leads to, on one hand, pride. Well, I gave more than you. I was in church more times than you. Um, I was this. I did that. I'm better than you. At least a pride. The other side of trying to work it out in a self-centered way, a self-righteousness way is when we really have a moment of honesty, we are in despair because we realize I'm a mess and I can't work it out. So there's two polar opposite ends of this expression of trying to repay my debt with God. And that is, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like these other miserable sinners around here. That's pride. Or I'm horrible. I'm worthless. I'm junk. I'm no good. I'm not as good as them. And it's all centered around me. Trying to make things right. That doesn't work. The only way that works is trusting in Christ to make everything right in his time. And this is faith. Works versus faith. This is the power and this is the sufficiency of the gospel of which Paul wrote that he was not ashamed of. So there's a serious threat going on in Galatian, in the Galatian churches, the threat to the fruitfulness of Paul's ministry because here come the Judaizers. And Paul brought them the message of faith that led to genuine salvation. And here comes the Judaizers saying, but there's more. You need to have this. You need to do that. You're eating the wrong foods. You're not celebrating on the right day. You're not dressing in the right clothes. Here's all of our lists of to-do and things you should not be doing, and you need to keep those. The burden really rests on you. How is it that we are saved? How is it that we are justified? How can the curse 
be reversed. That is the story of scripture. This is the story of the Bible. There's only one approach that succeeds and there are two. Let's look at the first. Let's unpack the first. The first approach is by works. Trying to keep the works of the law. That's what I'll do. It rests on me. So I need to do good things and I need to not do bad things and I will, I will work out the law. In this approach, and you might write it down just kind of out to the side somewhere, in this approach, the cross is useless. Remember in the sermon, clarification of justification. Pastor Jamie walked us through in this approach approach. I heard of it this week. Somebody rescued a horse out of a barn that was on fire and the horse went right back into the fire because there were other horses. I, I don't know if it's something with horses and they're drawn to fire, but can you imagine being there and you were joy, joyous for a moment that that horse is going to live and you were grieving about the ones you couldn't get out and the horse goes back in and, and it was also in Flint this week. There was a family in a house fire and they didn't get all the children out and hearts are broken over this. To try to earn favor with God is to make the cross of no effect, a waste, foolish. I need to do this. What was the purpose of Jesus' death. In this approach, there's no hope and there is not sufficient help. Verse 10 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 here, cursed be everyone who does not by, abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. There's a curse. We're under this curse, trying to merit God's favor. We've been working with this uh, definition of legalism, working, this is religious legalism, working in our own power according to our own rules, ultimately to earn God's favor. Because beloved, listen to me, the Judaizers, they couldn't bring all of the law to bear on the Galatian churches. It was impossible for them to do all of those things. So they picked and they chose. Oh, you got to do this. This is important. That, well, we can't do that. So never mind that one. This is important. Well, you can't do that. So forget that one. This is important. Understand this, that when Jews were mingled in, Gal in Gentile societies, then Jews could abide because on Sabbath day, Gentiles could do the work that they couldn't do. But when the Jewish liberty was given, they're back in their country. Now suddenly, who's going to do the things that need to be done on the Sabbath day? How are we going to abide by these laws when they function so closely with Gentiles as things changed? Trying to merit God's favor, trying to keep the works of the law. Here's the problem that leaves us still cursed. We're left in this condition and we are hopeless in this condition because we're unable to keep the whole law. So the law kills us. The law crushes us. The law shows us we are law breakers. It's our natural tendency to minimize our own sin, our own wrongdoing. We attempt at times to minimize our offensive thoughts and our behaviors before God, others, and even ourselves. And so this brings us to the law. It brings us to the Ten Commandments. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name? 
All right, we, we've gone through this. All 10 commandments are in here. They didn't quite fit. I tried to get all 10 in there, and they did not. They were in order for the first service. They're not in order for this one, so we'll see what order they come out in, okay? Um, let's get rid of this. Number six. Who knows what number, commandment number six is? You shall not commit murder. We failed the Ten Commandments already. You have proven the, the point, all right? So uh, there it is. Uh, you, got it re- you wrote it down, Jim? Okay, very good. Okay, June gets a point. I should give her that ball. Uh, let's see, number eight. You shall not steal. That's good, all right? We've got to keep all ten. These are just ten. Number seven, you shall not. It was said a few moments ago. Commit adultery. Very good. Number uh, five. It's every kid, every time. You shall honor your father and mother, right? I'm having a little trouble here. All right, let's see. Uh, number, what number? What is it? Four. What is number four? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament because of the resurrection we worship on the Lord's day. If you're in a persecuted country and you worship on Thursday morning at 3 a.m. in a house or in a basement, you're not in violation of the Sabbath because we'll see it in a moment. We've been delivered from under the law that we couldn't keep anyway. So far, I have four. All right, we're adding, there's, there's what, we got five in one hand. I'm, I'm quickly running out of trouble here, okay? Um, let's see, number three. Oops, here we go. All right, number three is... Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He will not hold. So what's common in our culture? OMG. Using God's name to express disgust or excitement, jubilation, and it's becoming more and more prevalent, but that, it's not limited to that. We're made in his image. Do we really represent him perfectly all the time? I don't. I'm going to save that one. All right, let's see here. I'll look like this. Number two. Shall not, no graven images. We don't worship idols. Don't bow down before idols. Number nine. No lying, right? The lying nine, for those of us who remember that. I had trouble with that one big time when I was a kid. Lied all the time if the truth sound better. Now this one, what's number 10? You shall not covet. Let me tell you, this one right here, I brought home in my pocket last night and Scout saw this. He's our little dog. He didn't want his donut. He didn't want his ball or the blue one or the orange one. He found this one and he want, he. He coveted this thing all night. I tried to hide it everywhere in our house, and he kept following me everywhere, wanting this ball. He was relentless. We weren't sure if we were going to actually sleep or not. Okay, that's all of them, except for this one. Number one, no other gods before me. God, putting God first all the time in everything. Listen, beloved, I want us to understand something. If I was, this is just 10. This isn't all of the commands. This is not all of God's law. This is the 10 commandments. 
If the expectation was, keep these 10, don't drop. These are just tennis balls. Don't drop them ever. For all of your life, don't drop them. Never. You can't drop them. If you drop them, you die. What chance do I have to make it through this afternoon? I've already dropped one. I'm done. And what I want you to never forget when you see this is this law was not given to us by God waiting to just condemn us and, or here, do this and this is how you can save yourself. The reason that God gave these commandments is to show his character and to let us realize I can't keep your law. No matter how bad I want to, how many people do you know and they think, I'm trying to do my best? But if we break one command, we're guilty. James 2.10, we've broken all of God's law. How am I going to preach and hold on to God? I can't. What is the point? The point is for us to realize, I can't. I need someone to keep God's law. That brings us to Christ. So with that, you're not going to forget that. I trust that you will not forget that. When people talk to you and they say, well, I've never killed anybody. And you will remember the word of Jesus saying, have you hated someone in your heart? You won't forgive someone. You've committed murder. You've broken the command. Somebody says, well, I've never committed adultery. I'm not even married yet. And Jesus said, have you lusted after someone? Because if you've lusted after someone, you have committed adultery in your heart. We are all law breakers and we need to be rescued from sin's curse. The wages of sin is death. So for not keeping the law, it's a death sentence. It's a death penalty. Let's look with me. Go to Matthew chapter 9, 19. We're going to look at a case study here in scripture of someone who, as Jesus uh, interacted with him, he was actually under the fog, the idea that I'm actually keeping the law. I've actually kept the law my whole life. I'm not that bad. I'm better than other people. I think I'm okay. And it's the rich young man. It's the rich young ruler. The other account of it is in Luke 10. In Luke 10, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Matthew 19 and verse 16, and behold, a man came up to him, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, I can't, Lord. I've tried. Is that what your Bible says? Nope. He said to him, oh, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. Oh, that's good. I haven't killed anybody. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, pretty good on that one. You shall not steal. Oh, I'm, I'm all right. Bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness. 19, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Whew. Young man said to him, all those I have kept, what do I still lack? When he said, I've kept all those commands, what is he in fact, which commandment is he breaking? The line nine. 
That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not even just obey your parents. It's honor them. Oh, I've done all that. But here he's honest. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, you want to be complete, you want to be right, you want to be clean in God's sight, you want to be perfect? Go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. When the young man heard that this, he went his way sorrowful for he had great possessions. Hmm. So when push came to shove, we see that he doesn't love God more than he loves himself and he absolutely does not love other people more than himself. And if you look into Luke 10 and you see the parable of the Good Samaritan, the account of the Good Samaritan, in that account, he, Jesus turns the question, he says, which one was neighbor? Remember he asked, who is my neighbor? Which of these was neighbor? And this man couldn't even say the name Samaritan. Oh, the one that showed mercy the one that took care of him. He couldn't even say the Samaritan because he was so filled with racism and hatred for those people. Jesus confronted him in love. But he loved himself more than he loved God. He loved himself more than he loved others. The question number seven in the New City Catechism is this. What does the law of God require? And look at this definition. You're like, whoa, that's overwhelming. This is what the law of God requires. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Now, who feels really good after that? Oh, that was it? Woo! I thought it was going to be a hard one there, a difficult test there, Pastor. That says, hit, sunk. Right? This says, I need someone to do this for me. I need a savior. D.L. Moody, after one of his campaigns, been preaching for many nights. They're packing it all up. And a man who had been there came and came to Moody and said, what must I do to be saved? And D.L. Moody told him, you're too late. Surely I'm not too late, he said. He said, you're too late. You're 2,000 years too late. Everything has already been done. But there's time for you to repent and trust in Jesus. And the man bowed his life to Christ. So many people, what must I do to be saved? You see, in this condition, we're still cursed. And verse 11 reveals that in this condition, trying to earn our way to heaven, trying to work our way to heaven, we're still guilty. We're helpless in this condition because our debt is far beyond our ability to repay. Verse 11 says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Who can stand before God and say, I've kept everything? I haven't. So what are we going to do? We're still guilty. Uh, some time ago, it was about probably 10, 10 years ago, I came through on a Tuesday morning, came through the stop sign over here by the school. I pulled up into the back, and behind me was a police car. He rolled down his window. I got out of my car, and he said, um, 
you rolled through that stop sign back there. You didn't stop all the way. Richard was out there. And Richard said, take him to jail, officer. <laughs> I felt the love, Richard. I felt the love. I really did. And that officer made a point. Stop. Now, I want you to know, if I would have responded to the officer in this way, because Richard introduced a little levity, and he was discerning, am I taking the instruction? What am I doing with his instruction? Am I desiring to uphold the law, or am I a rebellious person against the law? If I would have said to him, do you know how many times I've stopped all the way at that stop sign? I think the lights would have gone on and he would have changed his tone toward me. His disposition toward me. I watched a clip from a sermon this past week. A pastor is, I don't know if you can call it preaching or just yelling. And he's like, the red hymn book. The red hymn book. That's the hymn book. I'm like, well, I'm toast. I grew up on a green hymn book. Uh, pinkish red hymn book, a blue hymn book. I had a gray hymn book at another church. We had gray hymn books here. We don't even use hymn books too much now. We use a screen. But the man was positioning his argument so much that he almost could have led you to believe that Jesus said, gentlemen, crowd, take out your red hymnals now in the inspired 1611 King James difficult English, and let's proceed to sing before we break the bread and hand out the fish. He took his thing and he elevated it to absolutely berate anybody who sings out of any other hymn book than the red hymn book. And he was serious. And people didn't get up and leave saying, you're on about your own thing instead of the cross and the gospel. You mean to tell me that people who live in other countries who don't read or speak English, they're something less than us. There's implications to our views, beloved. It's, a sh it's shameful. We're still guilty. So you can sing out of a red hymn book and tell me how many sins have you washed away? None. Not one. We're not made clean before God as we attempt to keep the law because keeping the law will not erase one offense of the law. The righteous shall live by faith. This is a text, and when we study through Habakkuk, Habakkuk is where we see this, first of all, Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And this verse from the Old Testament is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, come on the screen. Here is emphasizing God's, the just, okay? That for in the righteousness of God is, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, the study that we're looking at right now. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. We can't do it. We can't keep it. For the righteous shall live 
The, the Judaizers coming into the Galatian churches, they're taking them away from the gospel that leads to life. They're taking them back into a system of works and preferences and traditions that kills people while they think, I'm thankful I'm not like them. Do you know how many times I pray? Do you know how much I fast? Do you know how much all I do? Usually it's not bad things. It's taking those things, putting them on a resume to put them before God and other people to say, look how good I am. Look how bad you are. I am a great person. That misses the gospel. If you're going to live, you have to live by faith. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 38 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And in Hebrews, it's all about faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. This is right before chapter 11. The hall of fame, the hall of faith in the Bible of all the individuals who by faith, they trusted the Lord and they obeyed and they saw God do miraculous things. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's by faith. It's all by faith. I was reminded of Martin Luther as he recounts how he came to faith as an Augustinian monk. This guy was relentless in trying to get every sin confessed. So the church put him on to Romans. They're like, put him on Romans. That'll keep him busy for a long time and out of our hair. It changed his life. And it changed centuries, 500 years ago. This is what, listen to Luther's own words. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy of God, he justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now became it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith, that Christ is your savior, then at once you have a gracious God for faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith that you should look upon his fatherly friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. This is grace. 
the just shall live by faith. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here, Paul's quoting Leviticus 18.5. And every one of us should respond with, I can't do them. I can't keep the law. How am I going to live then? If the law is not of faith, it's of works, then how can I keep the law and live? We need to be rescued. The law demands complete obedience and does not rest at all upon mercy, upon grace, or upon faith. So then what is the other approach? The first approach is failing, and that is the approach of by works. I'll try to keep the works of the law. I'll try harder. Pastor, pray for me. I'll try to do better. I'll try to be kinder. I'll try to be more generous. I'll try to be more in church. I'll try all these things. And how many sins will that wash away? Not one. Then what do I do? Exactly. You need grace. It's through grace. Trust in Christ's work on the cross. See, here's the deal. You either trust in your work or you trust in Christ's work. You cannot trust in both. You have faith in one or the other. When we are saved by grace through faith, in this approach, the cross is central. In this approach, the saint is rendered redeemed in Christ. Here is where we are set free. Who the Son sets free is free indeed, John chapter 8. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from, and this is under the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged, is hanged on a tree. In this, Paul is using the original language to say, here we were, sinners under a curse. Christ came in and he over us became under the curse for us. And the picture is that of the chicklets and a storm is coming in, hailstorm, and the mother hen comes in and puts her wings around and over those little chicklets. And those little chicks are wrapped in and they're kept warm and they're kept safe. And the hailstorm falls and it crushes the mother to death. The farmer comes out afterwards and he removes the body. And there the chicklets are alive. They're running. They're, they've been set free. Why? Because that mother hen bore the punishment, bore the weight, the wrath. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Paul is highlighting here, that Jesus Christ set us free, that Jesus was not a sinner, but rather he became sin for us. He was crucified in our place. This is the substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, that God, for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how this goes together? He wasn't a sinner. I'm not righteous. He became sin, died in my place, was buried, rose again to give me what I don't rightfully have and I can't earn. He became sin in the same sense that we become righteous and it's all by trusting in his finished work on the cross. The law brings a curse, but Christ brought redemption. So we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose how much of their guilty stain? All of it. Lose all their guilty stain. Lose all their guilty stain. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stain. Why? By something they did? No, by what he did. I can't keep the law exactly. You have to admit, I'm not good. But you are good. And I need you to save me. And in that, you become righteous because he became sin and suffered in our place. Christ, the redeemer, that word for redeem, it means to buy back at a price, to buy up and out, to go in, to buy up and deliver out. A Roman soldier could buy out of service to buy up and out, to go in and buy a slave up out and give them their freedom. Christ is our redeemer. The price was his blood that he shed. Christ is the cursed in our place. Let that sink in this morning, beloved. Do you like being wrongly accused? Try it with your kids. Somebody does something, just blame the other one. Like, you're going to be punished. But they did it. I don't care. I'm punishing you. What? That's not, what's the word? Fair. Oh, we all know that one. What Jesus did in our place was not fair. But he did it so he could be the one who is just and the justifier of all who come to him by faith. How do we have justice served? There's two ways. You pay the price for your sin or Jesus paid the price for your sin. You pay the price for your sin, being separated for God for all eternity in a place called hell, or you trust in Jesus and the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin was bore out on him. He died in our place. In the same way that our sin was credited to Jesus' account, he died so that his righteousness would be credited to our account by faith. This is what Romans chapter 10 says, and Paul writes, he is so earnest for his, his countrymen, for other Israelites to come to know Christ. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're sincere. How many people do you know, or maybe even you this morning, and you are sincere. There is zeal in your religion, and there's fervor, and there's giving, and there's going out and, and knocking on doors, and, and you see them in vans, and they're faithful and faithful and faithful. But it's not according to truth. This is what Paul is describing. Even the Judaizers would be in this category for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Verse 4 will come on the screen. For Christ is the end. And you can tell, translate that word as fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He fulfilled it. I can't keep the Ten Commandments. Jesus did. So when you think about this, what can wash away our sin? I don't eat pork. And there are people who are devoted to that with all seriousness. 
What can wash away our sin? I fast during Lent. What can wash away? I don't drink caffeine. What can wash away? I sing out of the red hymn book. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we can't end up, you know what I've done? Do you know how good I am? Do you know how great my opinions are? Do you know what I think the pastor should wear? Do you know what color I think the church? Who cares? I'm better because this, that, and that. How does that glorify Jesus? I'm worthless. I'm no good. I'm rotten. He can't ever use me. I'm not worth. Who are you focusing on? Not Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. So that, verse 14 says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen to where it's going. Not only are we redeemed in Christ, but we're blessed with Abraham. He's our spiritual father. As people of faith, we see Paul unveil the purpose of God, choosing, calling, and blessing Abraham with an unconditional covenant that Jews and Gentiles are blessed. No longer attempting to keep the law, leading to pride, or leading to despair, but we're set free to serve the Lord Jesus in radical obedience out of love. And we're reborn of the Holy Spirit. We're adopted as sons. In the Garden of Eden, we lost that presence of the Lord. We were separated from God. He's holy. So if we're going to know and we're going to love and we're going to enjoy God in his presence, he has to make the way. And he did in Christ, in the incarnation. And when Paul writes this, do you see what he does in verse 14? He puts the blessing of Abraham, and, and here we are in the blessing of Abraham. But do you see where he puts his hat? We. He moves over to the side of the Gentiles and he says, do you understand we're part of one big family? He says, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We are reborn of the Holy Spirit. We're redeemed in Christ. We're blessed with Abraham. We are reborn of the Holy Spirit. We're adopted as sons. It's not just for the Jews. It's to all who believe. And God is making one people, a church. So with the gift of God's spirit, we are baptized, the New Testament says. We are sealed with his spirit. We are given spiritual gifts by his spirit. We are indwelt by his spirit, which means we're never alone. And we have the re power of the resurrected Christ living in us as believers. We are guaranteed heaven. We are filled with the Spirit, and we are anointed for powerfully effective service. This is all by the Spirit. It's all given. It's not earned. It's given by the Spirit of God. That's why they're called even spiritual gifts. So Paul is laying it out before the Galatians saying, who wants to go back to an empty, dead system of works, of grading your performance by the people around you? Isn't it better to walk in freedom? Isn't it better to walk in grace? He's saying, I'm not going back. I was there. And I was on the road to hell. And Jesus of Nazareth met me, saved me, rescued me, delivered me. He redeemed me. I'm, a, I'm part of Abraham's seed now by faith. I belong to him. He's given me his spirit. So beloved, either a person is trusting in themselves or they're trusting in Christ, but you can't do both. 
These are two mutually exclusive positions, postures. I am trusting in me, my good works, or I brought to the table sin, shame, and rags, and I'm trusting in Christ. You can't do both. You say, well, that's good. Pastor, I hope somebody here that maybe is without Christ hears this and they'll trust in Christ. Understand Christians, that we can still act like and function like we're trusting in our good performance and what we're doing and we lose sight of, it's all of grace. And it leads us to be critical. It leads us to be harsh. It leads our opinions, get elevated up to gospel and scripture and salvation. So what's your next step? I usually close a sermon because this is the point. How do we put this into practice? When we get into small groups, this is what we're working out. How do we obey this? How do we apply this in our lives? What's your next step? Well, you might say, well, how am I, how does this curse get reversed in my life? I need to do it on my own. If that's what you hear, you've missed the sermon. You're thinking, I actually, if he handed me all those 10, I could do it. I could do that. How are you going to get to the temple and offer a sacrifice? There's no temple. AD 70, the temple was wiped out. So you think you can do those 10? You're in trouble. The people that you know who reject Jesus as Messiah, they're rejecting their only hope of salvation. It's not by works. It's only by grace. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of, lest anyone should boast. And verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're created, we're not saved by our good works, we are saved for good works. We can't do them without the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says it this way, Jesus was our substitute. He received the curse we earned so that we might receive the blessing he earned. The hymn says it this way. Only trust him. Only trust him. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Only trust him. Only trust him. Only trust him when? Now. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you when? Now. Perhaps you need to trust him this morning. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. Then you're going to be seated and you're going to hear the testimony of Rob who was baptized in the first service. And you're going to just enjoy and hear what God is doing in his life. Father, Thank you for the cross. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your mercy. The law condemns us, but you, O Lord, you give life. We can't earn. We don't deserve your grace. You freely give it. So I pray for the one who may be here today and they've never trusted you, that today they turn from their sin and trust in you right now and finds you to be the Savior who rescues them. 
comes and lives in them. In Jesus' name, amen.